there is kind of this gray area where we're using EBITDA now to define profitability for particularly young companies. I'm Daphne Howland. And I'm Danny James, and we're reporters at Retail Dive. This is our podcast where we look into the biggest retail trends shaping the industry. We talk about what traditional retailers are up to, what's happening in the DTC space, and everything in between. Plus, we'll be talking to some industry experts along the way. This is The Backroom. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Back Room. Today, Danny and I are talking about EBITDA, earnings before interest taxes. Danny, help me out. What's the D? Depreciation, Depreciation and amortization. And amortization. So Danny wrote a great feature on this, kind of delving into this metric on earnings reports and why people sometimes emphasize it. We as reporters stick to more conventional metrics, you know, net sales, net income, gross margin. The two times this really stuck out as a red flag for me were years ago, the first time years ago, and I did a lot of interviews with Doug Charney. He was in the midst of a big conflict with his board. He ended up getting fired among many other drama, much more drama than that. And he was insisting that American Apparel did really well, was doing really well, and he was emphasizing EBITDA. And it was definitely something I had to go look up, try to figure out what it was. Fast forward to much more recently when David Simon, who is the CEO of Simon Property Group and also a co-owner of department store JCPenney, in a sort of defending the retail investments that Simon Property Group has made, was emphasizing to analysts that EBITDA was really strong. You know, JCPenney's really profitable. And he also was emphasizing EBITDA. So Danny, why would mentioning EBITDA, what does that tell you if a company is discussing EBITDA rather than something like net income that we are more likely to report? Right. Yeah, I think it's a big question. And there's a few starting factors to just clarify before (laughs) I even provide kind of the viewpoints on that question, because there is different answers to your question. But yeah, you're right. As journalists, at least at Retail Dive, we tend to focus more on the gap metrics, right? Instead of non-gap metrics, which EBITDA is a non-gap metric. So not generally accepted accounting practice, yada, yada. And like you said, EBITDA is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. And actually what we encounter most of the time in retail and just in business in general nowadays is adjusted EBITDA, which is gen- it's exactly what it sounds like. It's just a further adjusted version of EBITDA. <laughs> and you can do a variety of factors with that number um, because it's non-GAAP, right? So the standards for what is deducted and what's not deducted, in theory, can change based on what the company wants to do. There are some general like rules of thumb, but it's not a cut and dry metric like net income. So just wanted to say that off the bat. And, and as an example, I think most people will know this who are listening, but just in case, you know, some of the factors that might not 
be included or it might be deducted for EBITDA would be like interest on certain debts or the depreciation of hard assets, kind of like machinery and equipment. So to be clear, what you're doing is you're basically saying, I don't want you to look at these certain expenses. I guess that would be really handy for a lot of us if we said, this is what my bank account would look like if I didn't have to pay my taxes. Right. Or, or, you know, like even we'll even see some brands and retailers talk about like removing their rent on stores. Right. So to, to get to your question, right, like why would someone put an emphasis on this or why would a company put an emphasis on this? What is it actually meant to prove versus how is it used, et cetera? The answer varies. And part of that is, you know, in theory, EBITDA can show you the core quality or health of a business. You're looking more so at sometimes interest and like conversion of money between currencies. Those types of things in theory can like cloud whether or not the business is actually like selling well, right? If it's doing well with consumers, regardless of those things like interests and taxes <laughs> and rent. Um, so in theory, it can show you the health of a business. Also, adjusted EBITDA especially is used by newer brands, so startups, which we encounter a lot in the DTC space, as a way to predict potentially if a brand will reach net income or, you know, be truly profitable in the future. In theory, like if your EBITDA continues to perform well, your net income is likely to occur following that. You're always going to have a positive EBITDA or adjusted EBITDA before you have a net income. So that's the case for some smaller brands. So definitely, I know that I've seen EBITDA much more commonly in stories around DTC brands, newer ones especially, like the pure players and the less well-known brands. In the two examples that I mentioned, American Apparel and JCPenney, those are two well-known brands, although American Apparel has sort of disappeared from the landscape and JCPenney might have a limited shelf life at this point. Generally, we tend to see this EBITDA metric or adjusted EBITDA reported by DTC companies, less well-known brands. What I'm interested in is for a long time, the buzz around DTC brands was growth of revenue. The focus was nobody's worrying about profits, including our investors. What we're after is growth and scale, and then we'll be profitable. Are we seeing more reports around EBITDA because investors are starting to think more about the bottom line for some of these newer brands? So I think an important note here is that investors care about EBITDA. They care about adjusted EBITDA. They have for the last, you know, decade and more. EBITDA comes from the 90s, by the way, and it has kind of a nefarious history of why it was invented in the first place, um, which I get into in my piece. But even nowadays, a lot of investors, a lot of analysts will focus on EBITDA and adjusted EBITDA, and it tends to have an impact on the market. So I don't think there's less interest in how brands EBITDA is doing and adjusted EBITDA. I do see that there is more interest in how the metric is being reported and used by certain entities and critics, including the SEC. The SEC has become 
more attentive, so to speak, to non-GAAP metrics um, in the last just couple of years. In fact, they've updated some of their FAQs about how to use them. And according to the SEC, you are supposed to reconcile or compare adjusted EBITDA pretty much and EBITDA to net income. Um, And often what you'll see with brands is those two numbers are very different. So what we see a lot in the D2C world, and I think it stems from that growth at all costs attitude you're talking about, is that even some of the brands who have had consistently positive EBITDAs and adjusted EBITDAs have not necessarily turned a true profit yet, you know, a real net income. Some have, but we haven't seen that with everybody. So so certainly with funding and VCs for private companies, we have seen they're more interested in the true bottom line, so to speak. But at the end of the day, at the moment, EBITDA is still a metric a lot of brands talk about and a lot of investors pay attention to. And it's how they sometimes define profitability, which is what you spoke about earlier. I know on the um, pretty successful athletics brand, you know, they've turned a net income now, but they haven't always had net income. They've sometimes had a net loss, but positive EBITDA. And they have historically defined that as still being profitable. Grow Collaborative recently, you know, the new CEO said he, you know, plans for the company to be profitable the end of next year. And in that sense, he was talking about EBITDA, not net income. Yeah. So the word profitable is also not, it's not a precise word, whereas net income has a precise math attached to it. Right. I think at the end of the day, like you either pulled in an income or you didn't. Right. (laughs) You either made a profit or you didn't. I think that's not up for debate. But yeah, there is kind of this gray area where we're using EBITDA now to define profitability for particularly young companies. I don't think all companies feel that way that are young. Monos, hope I'm saying that correctly, the D2C luggage brand, they compete with brands like Away. I've interviewed his the CEO of that brand and founder before, and he they're a private company, but he's told me that they're profitable. And when I asked him if that was on an income or an adjusted EBITDA basis, he clarified it was both. So he's put a big emphasis on actually being profitable, and that would be on an income basis <laughs> in his terms. That's really interesting. So by the way, I, I think you said this before, but GAP... And tell me if I've got this right. Basically stands for generally accepted accounting principles. Right. Right. Yeah. So gap and EBITDA is a non-gap measure. So we're talking about the wiggle room that you get when your accountants don't have to sign off on your numbers. Right. Unaudited things. Um, the numbers are just not to the scrutiny that the gap metrics would be. And brands are allowed to report those out, but um at the end of the day, like there's some regulation on how you use adjusted EBITDA, but um, the SEC hasn't really taken an interest in it as much until recently, or at least that's what some reporting from Deloitte has said in the past. It's definitely labeled on the earnings reports that it's a non-GAAP measure. So everyone understands that who's preparing the earnings reports and, and reading the earnings reports. But it's often, I think, speaking to reporters on analyst calls or probably speaking to investors where this often gets super highlighted. You also talk to analysts who I, I do see them mentioning it in their client notes and stuff. What did people, what did analysts say about the utility of this number? So I think there's a hugely differing opinion. 
there is a small but vocal group of critics who are not traditional analysts, but most people will know that Warren Buffett is a huge, huge uh, critic of non-GAAP metrics, especially EBITDA. He's spoken about this at length for years and years now. And in fact, way back in the day, he reportedly would refuse to invest in companies that even talked about this metric. That's impossible to do nowadays because everybody that's new in the game reports this metric. So he lost the battle on that, but he's still vocal about it. I spoke to a phenomenal accounting economics professor based out of London, Chris. He is in the piece and he speaks about his criticism of that metric. His opinion is that you are deducting real costs for a business, which I think is an opinion that is fair, right? And it depends based on the company you're talking about. It's sometimes tough to find out exactly what type of depreciation, amortization is being deducted. It can change quarter to quarter. Brands sometimes have to go back and change their EBITDA numbers because they decided to perhaps include stock-based compensation and they used to not. So there's so much wishy-washiness there that he, it was Chris's opinion that it's it's just not a good indicator of a healthy business and you should be looking at other metrics. He did say internally, sometimes it's good to have that metric internally to put pressure on managers to hit certain margins, but that was his criticism of this of the metric. I think when we talked to retail analysts, I spoke to Tom Nickick, who's from Wedbush. He follows the DTC space very well. It was kind of his opinion that earnings per share tends to be the primary profitability metric for him. It's not the only one, but it's the primary metric instead of EBITDA per se. But EBITDA does have an impact. And sometimes you'll see, he said, you'll see brands use it as a way to demonstrate cash flow. There is a debate there to be had as well. I also spoke to a Piper Sandler, a senior equity research analyst, Abby. She said to me that there are rare occasions where it gets a bit more hairy in terms of what the real expenses are being taken out. And you really just have to pay attention to what those addbacks are. I think one of the most interesting parts of the piece that I wrote is I actually got to interview one of the co-founders and co-CEOs of Warby Parker. So one of the biggest D2C brands in the space, and they've been around for many years at this point. He said to me, Neil said straight up that I think the quote was at the end of the day as an entrepreneur and as an executive, I'm going to manage the business based on the real world, right? I thought that was a very refreshing take. Um, You know, even I think there's a lot of fair criticism in the industry about EBITDA and how it's used and what it maybe distracts from, right? But Neil is of the opinion that if the market cares about it, if his shareholders care about it, if investors care about it, then it's his job as a CEO to talk about it. So whether or not um, the academics agreed with him, I think he said he has a lot of appreciation for academics, but um, they're not the people investing in his business per se. That's fair. I mean, I I get the sense that for a lot of brands in this space, especially those who have to court VC investors, but really anyone who's you know, it's a little bit of a dog and pony show, and right. But so that's the, if also earnings calls tend to be a dog and pony show. Yes, right. Yeah, and or even for public companies, earnings calls tend to be a dog and pony right. show, and everyone is emphasizing what they want to emphasize and de-emphasizing what they want to downplay. So I guess if your investors get jazzed about your EBITDA number, you're going to give them 
your EBITDA number. Yeah. And it's kind of this um, snake like eating its own tail, so to speak, in the sense that like perhaps this number was created back in the 90s by some somewhat nefarious companies. And it's just proliferated throughout the industry since. And even though there are a lot of brands, and the critics I spoke to said this, most brands who report this number are not committing any type of fraud. They're not trying to be fraudulent or misrepresent the business per se, but there are still some who do. And its roots are based in that essentially. So it's just an interesting metric that is so important in the industry, so important to startups. And I mean, not all of the predictions it's supposed to have actually come to fruition for companies. So it's a weird emphasis we have on the metric compared to some gap metrics. In the story, we have a few data visualizations from a few of the biggest DTC brands, Warby Parker included, kind of comparing net revenue to EBITDA to net loss or income over the years on an annual basis. And with many of them, you'll see that perhaps that positive EBITDA didn't predict a net income precisely. So definitely people should, if they haven't already, go and check out the graphics in your story because you can see what we're talking about. You know, net revenue might be doing great. And then EBITDA is much lower. Of course, there are a lot of, you know, expenses connected with conducting a business. So EBITDA is way down there, but it's on the positive line. It's above zero where in a lot of cases, net income just never gets above zero. Right. I think one thing that is for sure agreed upon is that if you have a negative EBITDA or a negative adjusted EBITDA, that's not good for sure. (laughs) I think a lot of people agree that that's a negative indicator, whether or not you appreciate the metric or not. And for some more struggling brands like Allbirds, they've had a consistent negative adjusted EBITDA and a net loss, and they've tended to trend similarly through the years. So it potentially is at least when you look at it like a good indicator of the core business. But whether or not that translates to future income is perhaps a debate. It almost feels like, I don't know, how would you, what would you compare it to? Is this sort of like makeup that kind of covers up blemishes? I mean, some critics would agree with that, yes. Um, And and even the analysts I spoke to acknowledge that it can get a little dicey between brands and you really need to have a keen eye to see what they start deducting and don't deduct. And brands are at the like leisure to do as they please with this number, essentially. Stitch Fix is a company that over the past few years, they used to consider stock-based compensation a real expense. So they didn't deduct it from their EBITDA or just EBITDA, if I remember correctly. And then one year, it was actually Tom Nickick who tipped me off to this. So thank you, Tom. They just started deducting it and didn't really say anything about that. I reached out to them. They never gave any comment, of course. Um, But I think that's a good example of where people try to perhaps make that EBITDA number look even better than it used to when other numbers are especially not doing so well. It's such a good example of the flexibility, let's say, of this because it's like, hmm, well, you know, if we take this out, this number is going to get even better. Right. And then you have something better to talk about. And when you're talking about stock-based compensation, that that's a whole other article in and of itself, because that can have a huge impact on that number, depending on the time of year, pretty much. 
So yeah, there's there's quite a bit of flexibility with the number. At the end of the day, whether it indicates profitability might be a debate, but you're either turning in an income or you're not. <laughs> it feels silly to almost talk about it sometimes, especially as a reporter, because I think the interesting thing about EBITDA is that it's controversial and yet it's completely not at the same time. You'll see it reported by almost every company out there, except for some of the established ones. I don't think you'll see it on Walmart's earnings reports, if I'm correct. I don't think Nike reports adjusted EBITDA precisely either. But a lot of critics of the metric will agree that they kind of lost the battle in fighting against it. Would you say, so without us, we're not going to take a side here. I mean, for us as reporters and for our readers, it's a another data point. It's really good, especially after reading your story, to put this in perspective. But it does seem like if a company is emphasizing EBITDA, there's an underlying reason. Either they're in growth mode and they, they want to unearth other indications of where they're headed. But it does also potentially seem like it could be a sign of trouble. Yeah, I think it takes a really keen eye to distinguish like what attitude or place the company is in in that sense. You have to really dig into the reports. You have to listen to the earnings calls pretty intensely. And, you know, the market cares about it. So sometimes we end up talking about it. You just have to. And it's not necessarily our place to entirely rule it out as a metric. You'll see us mention it every now and then. But I think when brands start to use it to define profitability, that's where it's important that we as journalists provide context. So what we've been doing at the publication for a while now is if a brand, especially a private one, says that they are profitable or they plan to be profitable next year, you know, the follow-up question is, okay, on what metric are you talking about? And we make sure to include that type of information because profitability is not defined the same by every brand. And you mentioned growth mode. I think although adjusted EBITDA and EBITDA are still really important to investors and analysts, I think you're right that we will perhaps see more interest in net income in the next couple of years, especially growth mode is like just not important anymore. I, I When I spoke to Grove Collaborative's new CEO, he, he specifically said they're less in growth mode nowadays and they're really focused on like reining in expenses, even though he emphasized EBITDA. So I wonder if we'll start to see a shift in how we associate growth and progress with EBITDA. I think maybe the growth at all costs sort of paradigm, you know, Maybe people are sick of waiting for their money or their returns, but even right. even which may never come right so. exactly for for newer brands, even older brands though I've spoken to Simeon Siegel at BMO Capital Markets, and he talks about more legacy brands like Old Navy and Victoria's Secret kind of reaching a sales plateau because of their age you know there's there's only so much growth mm -hmm. that you can get out of a brand after years and years and after dominating, you know, that's when you start to think about margins and profits, real, live, actual money making. If your sales are sort of tapering off or at least not taking off the way they once did, you know, then it, it becomes a matter of making money. Yeah. I think in a decade, if some of these really big, well-known DUCs 
are still not pulling in, in net income, maybe people will care less about that EBITDA number, you know? Um, and, and we're starting to get to that point with a few of the big D2C darlings. Although, honestly, a lot of the D2C darlings have been bought out anyway. So, Well, Danny, this was a really a great story. You know, I've been covering earnings reports and the financial health of companies for a really long time. I've encountered EBITDA. I was forced to figure out what it was. But your this story taught me a lot and it's actually reminding me that it's good to get the context as you said. And by the way, people don't have to go and listen to earnings reports because we do that for you. So Danny, great story and we're kind of hurtling toward the end of the year and once again I will be talking to Doug Stevens the retail profit. We'll look back at 2023 and get his thoughts about 2024 and what is coming up for retailers in the next, you know, in the future. This episode of The Backroom was produced and edited by Caroline Jansen. Please be sure to like, rate, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.